Hello and welcome to this episode of Methetes Radio, the much surer word exposed, the very first video episode of Methetes Radio, the much surer word exposed. Of course, if you are just listening to this in the simply audio version, then you're not getting the benefits or perhaps the unbenefits of the video. But nonetheless, this is the first video and audio episode of Methetes Radio the much sure word exposed. I wanted to do a bit of a a new format, adding the video component as well. I was talking with a buddy recently and we were discussing the lack of both politically conservative and theologically theologically conservative uh, content within Australia. Now, it's not that there's none, but there definitely could be more. And so it got me to thinking and kind of stirred me up a bit. And I thought, you know, we could do some video stuff with Methetes Radio as well. Maybe we should rename it Methetes TV or something like this. I don't know. But nonetheless, if you see us on YouTube, if you see us on Facebook, if you like it, then please share the content. If you think that it's a blessing, if you think that it's something that glorifies God, if it's something that... If we address a topic that perhaps you are struggling with or you know somebody who is struggling with the topic, then please share the content, get this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ out into the world. That's what we want. Now, later on, once I'm all over the YouTube address and all that sort of business, I'll release that. But... If you search for Methetes Radio, M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S Radio on YouTube, I'm hoping that you should be able to find this, but we'll be all over that later on. Obviously, this is the first episode. We're still ironing out the kinks. But if you are seeing this for the first time in a visual content and you've not come across us before, then we have around about 20-something episodes in just audio content that you can download, that you can listen to. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can hook up on our Facebook page. You can find us there. So please do that. Please find us on Facebook and like and share the page and find us on YouTube and like us there and follow us there. The more likes and things that we get, the more likely this content is to get out. And I would definitely encourage others. If you've got something to say about, yeah, conservative political issues, but even more so perhaps conservative theological issues, if you've got some stuff to say, then all I have is a computer and a microphone. I don't have a broadcasting channel. I don't have anything overly fancy. Get on the YouTubes and get some content out there. Make sure what you're saying is biblical, of course. As our tagline says, the much surer word exposed. We want to expose what the Bible says and get that content out into the world. But you can get your content out there. You can preach the gospel of Christ from the comfort of your office. Of course, I advocate going out into the world and preaching with people face to face and sharing with your friends and family as well. But nonetheless, you can get content to millions of people potentially just from the comfort of your office. Now, I've titled this episode, as you may have seen, Universalism Equals Heresy. 
And another tagline could be, eternal hell is real. Now, I'm not always addressing topics like this. So if you come across this for the first time, we're not always quite as cheery as we're going to be today. That's sarcasm, just in case you missed that. Um, But I've been talking with someone uh, whom I work with, and she's shared some content with me from a guy who is a universalist, and I'm not going to mention his name or tag him in this, which would probably be my usual practice, but at the moment I think maybe it's a bit too close to home and maybe it's not quite the right thing to be tagging him in things. Perhaps he'll see the content in any case and we'll interact like that, but not going to let you know who he is just yet. But he's a universalist and seems to have some sort of a a teaching ministry, maybe even runs a church somewhere, uh, and he's very big on universalism. It's not as if it doesn't come up often. It comes up quite often. And so I wanted to have a look at some of the things that he's said, some of the arguments that he's made, and hopefully dismantle them somewhat. Not because I like the thought of people going to hell, but because if hell is real and if not everybody is saved, then that's a message that people need to hear and people need to take seriously and people ultimately need to repent, need to turn away from sin and trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation. Now, there are some things within the Christian community, within the Bible, that are definitional to the Christian faith, and they are essential. We must have perfect unity on them. Things like justification by grace alone through faith alone, that that meaning rather that we can only be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. The fact that God has chosen his people and he saves them by what Jesus did on the cross, by our sin being transferred to his account so that his perfect righteousness can be transferred to our account. That's the only way we are justified. That's the only way we are made right with God. That is an essential doctrine. We can only be made right with God by God's own grace through faith in him. That's essential. The death and the resurrection of Christ. They are essential doctrines. They are definitional. The Trinity, the fact that there is one God, only one, in three separate persons who are one in being or one in essence. Now we learn of these things through the scriptures. And maybe there are some other things which you would consider essential, but let's mark a distinction between what we think is really important and then what is essential. Because maybe you would disagree with me, but I would say that being a universalist is not necessarily damnable. It's not necessarily that kind of level of heresy, but it most surely is not an encouraging sign. The scripture clearly teaches against against universalism. It clearly teaches that some will be separated from God, some will be damned for eternity, and some will be saved, will be in God's presence in the new heavens and new earth for eternity. Now, as I said before, the guy that I'm responding to seems to be some sort of a teacher. Now, James 3 
verse 1. I'm actually reading through James in my personal Bible reading at the moment. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And though not an inspired apostle, you might have heard of Paul Washer. He has this sort of rant about, you know, we ought to fear for the pastors and the teachers on Judgment Day. Those people who have been charged with shepherding Christ's beloved bride, the church. And so, for those of us who desire to teach the people of God, those of us who desire to be pastors, we ought to really strongly consider what we say. Because James has said, an inspired writer of scripture has said, that we will be judged with greater strictness. So consider that. Now there's a couple of arguments from this gentleman that I want to combat. I won't read you exactly what he said because it was rather long-winded, but here's what one of the perp but within the comments of but within the comments of what he was saying, there was a guy who summarized his argument really well. So I'll read you what he said. He said, so all will be saved ultimately. He's asking for clarification. So all will be saved ultimately. Some who are already believers. Some when he gives them second chance, Hades. And some at third chance, lake of fire. Is that what you're saying? So this gentleman, he had said that some people will be saved in this earth. Some people will come to, I guess he would say, repent and trust the Savior uh, in this lifetime, then God gives them a second chance in Hades. There are some people who will turn to God in Hades and they'll be saved from there. But then if people are really stubborn, God will put them into the lake of fire. But ultimately they will be saved from the lake of fire. There'll be some sort of a purging process that goes on. And so all will be saved somehow, be it on this earth, be it in Hades, or be at the lake of fire. And that's what that clarification comment is talking about there. And so there's two main things that I think we need to combat. One, is there any possibility of one being saved from the lake of fire? And two, are all saved? Now we're going to look at a whole bunch of scripture today, partly because I just want scripture to speak for itself. Sometimes the best way to compli- not to complicate, the best way to combat arguments is simply to let the scripture speak for itself. Just read it and let it say what it says. Yes, there's sometimes obviously that explanation and uh, expanding things can be good, but sometimes we just read it and we let it simply say what it says. Let's look first of all at Romans 9, 1-3. Paul here writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's my kinsmen according to the flesh. And so that being Israel. And so 
I want to ask the question, if all are ultimately saved after entrance into Hades and possibly the lake of fire, why is Paul so worried? He says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Well, if if everybody's saved, then why is he so worried about these things? Does he just want to save them the trouble of Hades and lake of fire? Or what's his deal? And he uses the word accursed, which in the Greek is anathema. Now, John MacArthur, a very well-known pastor and teacher, and he does a really great job, though we don't agree on everything, but pretty much. uh, He writes on verse 3 of this, speaking of anathema, to devote to destruction in eternal hell. That's what he uses. And some further research that I've done uh, indicates this. Uh, One meaning could be a thing devoted to God without hope of being redeemed. And if it were an animal to be slain, therefore a person or thing doomed to destruction. It could be a curse or it could be a man accursed, diverted, sorry, devoted to the direst of woes. And see how that fits with the verse. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He's saying that I wish that for the sake of Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, I wish that I could be damned, I could be cut off eternally, and rather that Israel could be saved. Now Hebrews 9, 27-28 uh, is a verse which this gentleman claims is, is vastly said wrongly and misinterpreted. So let's let's look at it. Let's see what he says, because I think it's really clear on what happens after people die. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This guy rightly points out, and I'm saying that sincerely, he rightly points out that this is half a sentence, and the rest needs to be read in order to uh, make full sense of it. And so let's read verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now this guy... Uh, makes an interesting point, and I I think I probably agree with him, that there are two parallels in these verses. He says, in a sense, part A, just as it is appointed for man to die once, part B, and after that, the judgment. Then back to part A, the parallel, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, part B, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so man dies once. Jesus was offered once. After man dies, comes judgment. After Jesus dies, after he is offered, he comes again for salvation. And so this gentleman makes the case that the two ought to be taken as direct parallels. So, Man dies once, Jesus was offered once. Man dies, then comes judgment. 
But this judgment is not uh, not a thing to be uh, woed of. It's not a thing to be sad about or, or afraid of because it's directly paralleled with Jesus coming the second time for salvation. He says that all will be saved. But that's not the case, is it? Have a look at the verse. Who did Jesus die for according to this verse? And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of who? Many. Not all, but many. So Christ took on the sins of many. He did not take on the sins of all. I realize that's a hotly contested topic, but like I said, let's let the scripture speak for itself. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, i.e. not all. The verse does not say that Jesus saves all. Even if we grant that parallel, and like I said, I'm inclined to agree with this guy that there is uh, two part A's and two part B's, and they are sort of parallel to each other. But let's, let's contrast the two part A's. And just as it is appointed for man to die once... So man dies once, uh, and then we go to the other part A. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Both of those things happened at a set period of time, and they are conclusive. They're done. Let's look at the part Bs. Uh, point for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Then the second part B appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is there anywhere in that that says that all will be saved? No, there's not. And again, this gentleman rightly points out that this chapter uh, is within the context of talking about the greatness of the new covenant uh, in comparison with that of the old covenant, and how the animal sacrifices of the old covenant covenant didn't take away sins, uh, whereas the perfect sacrifice of the new covenant does. And I agree with him wholeheartedly on that issue. But nowhere in that and nowhere in these verses does it say that Jesus died for everybody and does it say that all will be saved. Rather, the fact that man dies once and then comes the judgment ought to make us soberly consider our own mortality. After we die, the deal is done. Only what we do in this life with Jesus will count. So take the parallel, for sure, but let the verse, let the chapter, let the book speak for itself. Now, here's a bit of a longer section of scripture. And if you're wondering why I'm sort of looking to the camera and then down, obviously I'm reading the stuff that is down a little bit more. I'm sorry if that's distracting. Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I really like that last bit on a slightly different subject, but I really like that last bit, how it talks about the great importance and power of God's word. It says that we don't need some sort of miraculous signs and wonders. We don't need someone to rise from the dead and preach the gospel to us. We need God's word described there as Moses and the prophets. But notice especially what it says here about the great chasm. It says, besides all this, between us, those in heaven, and you, those in, at this time Hades, but in the bad place, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you, from the good place to the bad place, don't know why they'd be doing that, but in any case, that's what it says, those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So nobody's doing any crossing there. There's a great chasm. Now Matthew 25, 31-46 uh, comes after a, a various series of parables and, and woes to the Pharisees and this sort of business. Uh, but it says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him, will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, 
as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You want to talk about parallels? There's your parallel. Some go away into eternal punishment and some into eternal life. Eternal. Ionios in the Greek. Forever. The same word, perhaps I'll find this and um, put it in the show notes, but the same word, John MacArthur writes this great article talking about the eternality of hell. So a related but separate issue. And he says the same word, Ionios, that is used for eternal hell is also used for eternal heaven and is also used for the eternal God. And so he says, if you want to ditch the concept of eternal hell, then you've also got to rule out eternal heaven and you've also got to rule out the eternal God because it's the same word that is used for each. So, do we see anybody in this eternal punishment coming to know Christ? Well, they might know him in his wrath. Having said earlier that uh, some folks are separated from him for eternity, there's some debate about that, and I think I would be inclined to say, though I need to do some more research on it, I would be inclined to say that it is God who pours out his wrath on people eternally in hell. It's not just as if they're separated from his presence full stop. Rather, they're separated from everything that is good, well, everything that is kind and and sweet and merciful about God. Rather, the great God of all simply pours out his wrath on them for eternity. But, again, separate but related issue. And so last verse, and then I'll conclude. Romans 9, 22 to 23 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now, if you were to take this, or these rather, verses by themselves, perhaps you could posit that some are prepared for wrath, uh, and then eventually, in this wrathful environment, they come to their senses and they come to know Christ. Maybe you could say that, but using these verses in light of the other verses that we've looked at, I really don't think you can make that case. You've got to say that the Bible has a consistent message. Some are righteous. Some are wicked. Some go to a good place. 
some don't. Some are saved, some are damned. And both of those are eternal. I realize that's not something that perhaps makes you want to jump out of bed and go skipping along and whistling to, but if it's the truth, then it's something that we ought to soberly consider. And so I uh, partly throw in those last verses from Romans 9 uh, in order to combat that kind of notion that you know, God is just interested in, in all the, the nice bubbly things for us. Well, I believe that God does want good things for us, absolutely. Sometimes that's not uh, all that we want. It's not all that makes us totally comfortable, but I believe absolutely God wants very, very good things for us and that he loves us beyond what we could possibly comprehend. But God is just, and these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, they go that way of their own volition. They hate God. They sin against him willingly, out of a heart that wants to rebel against God. And so God rightly judges them. He damns them. Sobering, I know. But what's amazing about all of this, and I've shared this before in podcasts, is that God is good. I would say to you that I think that's one of the things that we must take on as we look at Scripture, and certainly as we look at this subject of universalism and eternal hell and this sort of business. God is good. And so if he doesn't save everybody... God is good. If God sends people to hell because of their sin against him forever, God is good. Now, if God shows his mercy to some, God is good. If God saves some on this earth and then takes us to, to be with him forever, then God is good. But some vessels are prepared for wrath. For destruction, and some are vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. And so to conclude, does the Bible teach that men can be purified, or whatever word you might like to use, in Hades or the lake of fire? Most certainly no. It teaches eternal salvation, and it teaches eternal destruction. It speaks as we've looked at. There is a great chasm between those who are with God and those who are punished eternally. And Jesus himself said that there would be some who would go away into eternal punishment and some, the righteous, who would go to eternal life. Implicit in that statement is that not all are saved. Well, you could even say explicit, probably. And so in light of all this, I want to plea with you the universalist, or you who do not know Christ, who have not turned away from your sins, the call of the gospel is this. The only hope that you have for eternal life is this, is to repent, is to turn away from all sin, read through God's law, search for his Ten Commandments, and ask yourself, have I kept these? The answer invariably is no, we have not. 
everyone has turned away from God, all fall short of his glory. No one matches up to his standard. And so we must repent. We must turn away from sin. And we must trust in Jesus Christ as our only hope for salvation. When he died on the cross, he took on the sins of his people. He suffered in their place. He took their guilt and their punishment. So in turn, as we do those things, turn away from our sin, repent and trust in him. His perfect righteousness. He kept the law perfectly. He was God, so it was within his character to do so. Unlike us sinful human beings, it is not in our character to keep God's law. So Jesus kept God's law. And so he wasn't worthy of punishment like the rest of us. And so if we'll repent, turn away from sin and trust in him, then just as our sin and our rebellion and the wrath that we deserved was credited to his account and he suffered in our place, so his perfect righteousness can be credited to our account. And so on the day of judgment, we can go free because Jesus has paid our fine. And rather than God seeing us in light of all of our sins, he will see us in light of Jesus' perfect righteousness. He will treat us just as he treats his own son, Jesus Christ. And so that's what I wanted to say today. That's the worrying message that I wanted to confront. And so maybe you've got something to say in, uh, say back to me, or perhaps you just want to take that in and contemplate it, I would beg you to do so. If this is a message, especially that last bit about what Jesus did on the cross, if this is a message you've heard for the first time, then please soberly consider it. Because the consequences of not repenting and trusting in Jesus are so, so big. You won't have a second chance in the lake of fire. Sorry, in Hades. And you won't have a third chance in the lake of fire. It's appointed once a man to die. That's the finality of it. Then comes his judgment. So God bless, guys. Consider what we've said today. This is Tobias signing out on the Thetase Radio, the much sure word exposed. The Thetase Radio.